This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we are here, as we always are, every day to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic. Today, we honor and remember the victims of the pandemic. More than 200,000 people have died just here in the U.S. and close to a million across the world. We read off the death numbers. Sometimes we forget that each one is a person. They had families. They had friends who loved them. Now, we are going to hear the stories behind the people as told by their family members. We do this to get a better sense of the true toll this pandemic has taken on millions of families. Joining us throughout this special podcast is Dr. Robert Niemeyer. He's the director of the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. We begin with Scott Cohn from Nassau County, New York. His father, 80-year-old Charles Cohn, died from COVID-19 in April. And we also have Joanne Rodriguez from Yonkers, New York. Her father, 86-year-old Anthony Rodriguez, died from COVID-19 in a nursing home in New York. We begin with Scott. Scott, tell us something about your father. Besides being, uh, you know, my father, he was a uh, very close friend. Um, He was also a co-worker of mine. Uh, He's still, uh, up until the time where uh, New York State shot us down... into quarantine, he was uh, still at work every day, eight hours, five days a week, uh, although he was 80, and I'm sure everyone in their heads picturing, uh, you know, an older gentleman with a cane or slouched <clears throat> over, he was more like a 60-year-old. <clears throat> he was very active, uh, loving guy, loved his family, uh, loved being with, uh, you know, his four children and his uh, <clears throat> many grandchildren, and uh, when they visited and just speaking and laughing and and having a great time. And uh, like I said, I lost more than my father that day. Joanne, your father, Anthony, tell us about him. Sure. Um, Well, unlike um, Scott's dad, my dad had many medical issues. He also suffered from depression, anxiety, mental illness, and uh, more recently diagnosed a few years back with dementia and Parkinson's. So my dad had a lot going on, but he was still an 86-year-old and stabilized. Um, growing up, my dad huh, was, was a pin me, but he was, he was just the strength in our family. My father was the one who was always there to rush us to the ER when we needed to get stitches when we were kids, uh, defend us, take us to school, deal with the situations um, and their in a very matter-of-factly way. My father was a man with very few words, but when he did speak, he spoke matter-of-factly and he was heard. Um, um, but then after he could divorce my mother when I was 17, he declined mentally from that. It was married for 21 years, but he took it hard and he was never the same again. So that's when the mental illness started. And over the years, me and my sister and brother had helped him as much as we could um, while also raising our families. Um, now, more recently in the nurse. My dad um, didn't know what was going on during this whole time, although he was explained. He really didn't understand too much what was going on. And he depended and depended on me um, before COVID to uh, assist him with eating, um, feeding him, making sure the nurse, he was cooperative with the nurses to take his medication. Um, so when everything shut down, um, 
I, I just picture every day in my head, even six months later, what really happened uh, behind closed doors in those nursing homes. Because pe- patients and residents like my dad who have all these ailments and illnesses and, and don't understand what's going on, I, I can't picture the, he- the quality of care that he must have gotten under those circumstances. Okay, and, S- Scott, uh, and we'll come back to you in, in, a, in a minute, Joanne. Scott, uh, tell us how COVID-19 entered your father's life and your life. How did that happen? Well, it started uh, actually months back. Um, right now, uh, like I said, we were, we're in business together with my other brother, Michael, um, and we deal a lot with uh, overseas, and uh, it, it really started affecting us directly, obviously not medically, when uh, our friends in China uh, started telling us what was going on there. <clears throat> and uh, it became really apparent to us that whatever it was, was uh, it was very real and very dangerous. <clears throat> um, within the course of a, a couple of months, <clears throat> Um, like I said, they shut us down as far as quarantine here in New York. And uh, a few days later, my father just started feeling ill, just a cold. Uh, over the course of a few days, he got much, much worse um, until he wound up in the hospital. And immediately upon uh, getting to the hospital, he was put on a ventilator. Uh, I would say five, six days later... Um, I started with a fever <clears throat> and um, panicked. I went to the doctor. They put me on some medication, <clears throat> hoping it would help. And uh, on March 31st, <clears throat> I wound up in the hospital by ambulance, not being able to breathe. Uh, I spent a few days uh, in the hospital before winding up on a ventilator myself. <clears throat> and uh, while I was on a ventilator, um, on April 11th, while I, like I said, I was still on the ventilator, my father passed away. Um, I did not find out about it for probably close to, to another week and a half after uh, he passed, and I'd been on the ventilator during the funeral, and uh, you never really got to see him or, or say goodbye, and really even pay my respects with my family. Um, very, uh, very odd, emotional and oddly not emotional at the same time. What, what is that like to, to be worried about him first and then to start to worry about yourself and then wind up on the ventilator? And how much do you remember even of that time when you were in the hospital? I remember uh, getting to the emergency room. I remember being moved to a COVID unit. <laughs> Um, bits and pieces of that I remember. Um, <clears throat> I remember being taken up to the ICU and talking to the doctors about being put on a ventilator. <clears throat> uh, and they were holding off as long as they could because that was around the time when they had realized that putting people on a ventilator right, right away was not the right uh, way to go. <clears throat> um, you know, I worried about him as soon as he got sick. <clears throat> um, we assumed what it was based upon his symptoms and what they were telling us in the media. Uh, and on top of that, like I said, at the end of the day, he's an 80-year-old man. <clears throat> um, you know, how much could 
the human body take, no less, you know, at, at, at that age. Uh, so I was very worried about him. <clears throat> um, I will say when I got sick, I don't really think I ever worried about myself. <clears throat> um, I worried about my wife and my three sons. <clears throat> and uh, what if something catastrophic happened to me? What was going to happen to them? <clears throat> um, you know, uh, Scott, how long have you how long have you been coughing now? Uh, this is something that was caused by being intubated for so long. Um, it caused reflux and, uh, <clears throat> sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but it'll probably be with me for a long time. When they told you that your dad had passed away and you had just finally come off of the ventilator, <coughs> take me, take me to that moment. Well, <clears throat> I came off the ventilator, um, and I was hallucinating tremendously. Uh, it was probably about five days or six days. <clears throat> I did not know I was in the hospital. <clears throat> I thought I was traveling the world. I thought I was on a bus. I thought I was on a 747 with an observation deck. I thought I was on a riverboat. I, you know, <clears throat> crazy hallucinations. <clears throat> and, um, by the time I started to become lucid, <clears throat> which like I said is five, six days later, I wasn't sure. And I kept calling my wife on the, the, the phone in, in the room and saying, can you please bring me my cell phone? <clears throat> you know, it's boring. I want to check my mail. I want to do this. <clears throat> and I wound up fighting with my wife for a few days. <clears throat> they didn't want to give me the phone because they did not want me going on social media and finding out about <clears throat> my father finding out about what happened to me and how I was saved. Um, and, you know, they didn't think in, in, in hindsight they were correct. I could not have handled that physically at that point. Emotionally is another story, but my body, I still couldn't breathe. I had double pneumonia. I was on oxygen. Um, I couldn't even get out of bed. I had no strength. Um, I actually found out about it. Um, I think I accidentally called my uh, older brother and, uh, I was like, you know, why won't my, why won't my wife give me the phone and back and mm -hmm. forth. And just in conversation, one thing led to another and he told me, and, um, All right, Scott, I, you know, I remember the, yeah, yeah I was gonna, I was going to put you on pause for, for a minute because I want to switch over uh, to Joanne and. Joanne, the, the same question for you as we raised with Scott. Um, there came the time, obviously, when COVID entered, entered the, the life of you and your family. Do you remember how it began? Oh, yeah. Um, well, at the end of, around the end of February, beginning of March, I myself got sick. Um, but I tested twice negative. So, but I had all the symptoms of COVID that I never experienced before in my life, and I knew it had to be COVID. Um, so I was debilitated in the bed around that time, um, trying to get better. At the same time, I was on the phone with the nursing home, calling endlessly every single day, two, three, four times a day, to find out how my dad was doing and what plans were in place to protect him. But I never got the phone calls returned to me. I also left emails. I never got an email back. So it left me very nervous. Um, I, me and my sister were like, uh, we, we, he was quarantined. We couldn't go there to see how he was doing. 
Uh, there's no correspondence at all between the nursing home and us. And then we get that dreaded phone call, and I remember it vividly. It was, um, now this is weeks later, so on April 27th, 26th evening, um, we get a phone call, my sister does, from the nursing home telling us that our dad is has a fever and um, he doesn't look well and is having trouble breathing, that they're going to send him to the emergency room. Um, so they sent him to the emergency room. My sister calls me and lets me know that he got there, but he's refusing to take his medication that they want to give him and they're going to eat. My sister had explained to the ER doctors and nurses that me, my sister, meaning me, her sister is the only one who can convince him to take his medication and maybe my sister needs to call. So that's my, when um, they said they would call me the next morning, they were obviously overwhelmed with so many patients that, that evening. So I prayed all night long. I prayed. I said, God, please, if it's this one last time, let me see and speak to my dad. Um, the next morning, I get the call at 9, 10 a.m. Um, this is on the 28th of April from the nurse telling me that on a FaceTime, um, if I can help them, help them by probably asking my father to take the medicine they're trying to give them, which was the hydrochloroquine. Um, which now we know is wasn't a good option for people who had heart problems, but and my father was a patient who had heart problems. But at the time, who knew? But anyhow, there he is on a FaceTime with me. I'm looking at my dad. He's laboring to breathe. He has an oxygen mask on. The nurse is telling him, Anthony, do you recognize your daughter? And he shook his head, yes. I, I, I tried everything in my heart and my mind to stay strong, not to let him see me cry which is very hard, but I didn't. And I told my dad, Dad, just please open your mouth. The doctors and nurses are here to help you. And I explained to him how important it was to do that. And a few seconds later, he opened up his mouth were able to give him the medicine. Um, then I looked at my dad. I said, Dad, I love you. Everything's going to be okay. I'm sorry I'm not there with you, um, but the nurses are going to be there to help you. And I felt like a liar afterwards because... Three hours later, I get another call from the physician on staff. They're telling me that my diet needs to be placed on a ventilator. The oxygen levels are way exceeded the amount that's needed uh, that I help him. So then at that moment, me and my sister had to make a decision really quickly, um, whether to have them put him on a ventilator or have him um, peacefully and comfortably pass away. We both agreed that considering my dad's age and what he's been through, put him on eventually would be a hard thing for him. So um, before we even got the chance to tell the doctors what our decision was, the doctor called me back uh, two minutes later to tell me my dad had passed. Doctor, uh, doctor, you're with us, and I want to bring you into the conversation. In, in listening to the stories that you've just heard, Scott, and Joanne tell about uh, COVID and how uh, it entered their lives and how it ultimately led to the deaths of, of each of their loved ones. As an expert on grieving, what do you hear that perhaps we, the listening audience, maybe are not picking up on? I wouldn't have the arrogance to say that I'm hearing what others are not um, I imagine anyone listening sensitively and who are willing to imagine the circumstances unfolding in their own family have plenty of empathy for getting what uh, 
what both Scott and Joanne are telling us. Uh, what I hear in it is is both the the uniformity and sameness of the circumstance, and also the diversity um, in these in these two different trajectories toward loss, toward death. Um, of course, with Scott, it was a pretty fast decline, and and uh, in the context of a father who seemed to be 20 years younger than his age in terms of his level of activity, engagement, uh, you know, being a co-worker friend, uh, very engaged. Um, of course, for Joanne, the, the backstory was different. Uh, it's one that really had been unraveling for a long time in a course of many illnesses and, and mental illnesses that in some way took her father from her a bit at a time from quite early in her life. And so I think it's important to recognize that the grief can be different. In one case, it can have this sense of maybe more trauma and shock. It just doesn't fit at all with the, the picture as it had been. Um, and then, of course, for Joanne, being in a position of caregiving in relation to a father who had long needed it, um, feeling that insufficiency of even being able to be with him uh, at the end and, and even to be engaged usefully in, in treatment planning at a point that it was already too late. Um, so there's a, a quality of, of suddenness and trauma uh, in both, especially uh, high, I think, in, in Scott's case. And then a sense of insufficiency to really be there and to feel uh, almost a fog of not knowing coming from the interactions with the the, the care facility in which her father was located. Um, so I, I hear those those differences, and that it reminds me that in some sense, how we grieve is a function of a few different factors. It's a function of who we are. It's a function of who we lose, and it's a function of how we lose them. Here, you know, both of these, these brave souls talking to us about their very intimate experience lost the same person in terms of a role, but a very different person in terms of who that person was for them and how intact and engaged they were before the illness. Um, and of course, they, they each then uh, experienced a COVID-related death and, and one that was pretty, pretty precipitous, pretty quick from the point that it was known. Um, but I do want to acknowledge uh, those points of, of difference as well as similarity as I listen to this story. And um, I also think that they're hinting at uh, aspects of this that are uh, that we often don't factor into the the statistics, right? As we look at the the real human dramas and the the heartbreak that lie at the center of all of this, and whether it's at the level of, in some sense, as Scott is still contending with, and as he says, he will for a long time, the physical impact of this illness on his own life. Yeah, Doctor, I want to I want to jump in here, and, and Scott, since you're you're with us here, have you had time? I mean, just based on what we were just hearing from Doctor Niemeyer. You trying to get yourself better, dealing with all this, did you actually have time to process your father's death? I did. Um, you know, I'll say one thing, you know, kind of a little off topic, but about me. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a retired career medic. I've been around death and destruction and as well as good things pretty much my entire life. And, uh, you know, people in that field, you know, you kind of become a little bit callous to protect yourself. Um, <clears throat> I think in my case, you know, that's also 
one of the things that kind of prevented me from, you know, hitting me as hard as I, as I thought it would, or I thought it should, <clears throat> but, you know, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very difficult. I, you know, after I was strong enough, it was probably about a month after I got home, uh, where I was able to give up my walker and my, and my cane, I was still on oxygen. <clears throat> um, but you know, my wife and kids took me to the cemetery <laughs> and at that point it, uh, it hit me. <laughs> Scott Cohen from Nassau County, New York. Scott, thank you for talking to us. Joanne Rodriguez, Yonkers, New York. Thanks to you both for for telling us what you've been through. We have Denise Kaplan from just outside Denver, Colorado now. Her husband, Scott, 43 years old, died of COVID-19 in May. Denise, the first thing that sticks out to me about that is 43 years old. That's young. Yeah, that's right. He... uh... He was a young 43-year-old and has um, left behind a 43-year-old wife, a 14-year-old son, an 11-year-old son, all of us who ended up sick as well. Tell us a little bit about who he was as a person. Um, Scott was a very active person. He um, basically lived his life trying to find ways to make a difference in everybody else's life. He um, always put other people first and always thought about other people first. He did a lot of fundraising. He did a lot of coaching. Um, he was a boss at work. He, um, he was a great friend. Take us through what happened. I think we've talked to, to people before who spend time racking their brains is, where did we pick this up? When did it start? And you said the whole family the whole family got sick. Yeah. Um, Scott got sick from work. Um, the kids and I went on a camping trip actually, and Scott was not a camper. So he decided to stay home and work and he was working on an important project that was, uh, important to him, but also later important to this whole COVID because he was working on, um, putting together purchasing of PPE for his company's, um, front line, people that were out on the on the road doing telecom work for people. So it was important for him to stay at work and finish his project um, instead of taking vacation. And when we came home from vacation, he was sick. Um, he was still going into work at that point, and um, I honestly don't know how or why he was going into work because he could barely sit up. He was so sick. Um, I made him quarantine in our master suite and get in touch with all of his physicians. And uh, everybody basically said, you know, we don't know what to do. You don't have a long-term fever or a high fever. Stay home until you can't breathe anymore. And uh, I didn't like that answer. Um, so I brought him into urgent care. And... Uh, Urgent care doctor barely even stepped foot through the doorway and said, I'm just going to give you a, a prescription for cough medicine. And uh, if you don't get better, we'll see you in another three months. Well, within two days, uh, he was gray. And I took him to the ER. And at that point, nobody was allowed in. 
I had to drop him off at the door. And he never came back out. We're also joined on, on this program by a Dr. Robert Niemeyer, who is a therapist and director of the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. Um, doctor, uh, I, I think that was a, a very tough story for anyone to listen to and, and more than a tough story for Denise to, to tell us. Can you offer any suggestions that you think might be helpful to her? Well, I, I wouldn't want to insult her with easy answers to such hard questions as the ones that you must have, Denise. I, I just want to say that I was I was very touched by your story, and, uh, and my heart broke a little bit as you ended it with that description of dropping him off on the, at the door and then never having him come back out. And I just think about all of the things that we do know about risk factors for, you know, complicated, prolonged, agonizing grief. And Boy, so many aspects of your experience, as well as the two previous folks we talked to, Scott and Joanne, uh, the stories are just filled with those risk factors, the social isolation, the fact that you couldn't tend and befriend Scott during the time that uh, he was in that in the ER, in the hospital, um, the seeming suddenness of the death, the, the lack of real institutional informational support from the doctors. All of these are things that we know complicate people's grief. And, and boy, you just had a lot of them um, laid at your doorstep, as, as very many people who lose a loved one to COVID, but really to any illness in the context of the pandemic, when you know everyone will be suffering from some form of uh, social isolation from their loved ones and from people who would otherwise support them. And uh, I think your, your story just goes to the heart of it. Um, what can you do that makes it better? I, I would hope that some of what you're doing now, to the the bravery with which you are sharing a story, in order to encourage the empathy and understanding of others, that is an enormous gift that you're giving to the world, to the this listening audience. You're giving it to us. Uh, we're having a chance to learn firsthand something that we hope, or learn secondhand something we hope we don't have to learn firsthand. And I hope you're teaching us all uh, a lesson in compassion and maybe in social and political action as well to, to try to stem this catastrophe. Doctor, there's a, there's a through line through these stories and the others that we have heard throughout this. And it's that, you know, this is not the way it's, quote unquote, supposed to go. We're not built to grieve without being able to be there, right? That's the worst case scenario for us to not be able to, to say that goodbye in person or to have a proper funeral. But that is what's happening in a majority of these cases because you have to be kept apart. And that is something that is a huge hurdle for anybody to be able to get over. Well, I'll tell you, I think that you, you phrase it very well. This is a through line that, that threads through the fabric of all of these stories and 199 uh, you know, and 97,000 uh, more, right? This is, uh, this is unfortunately a common denominator is that this kind of dying assaults our assumptive world, right? Our world of assumptions of how things are and should be, of what constitutes a good death. Um, our basic sense of predictability, of control, of justice. I know that as... Um, 
Joanna was talking, she talked about praying to God. And for a lot of people, this if they're spiritually inclined, there may be spiritual struggles entailed in this. What kind of God, what kind of universe uh, can can visit us with this kind of suffering and, and so randomly? So I think that all of these assumptions of that we, we thought we could hold about how the world is are called into question. And, and near the center of that, uh, all of that is our our bonds of connection to those we love. And when we lose them, without being able to display that love, without being able to honor them, without being able to sit in that uncomfortable vinyl chair next to their bedside while they're in hospital or in an elder care facility, and um, and to hold their hands, to comb their hair, to kiss their cheeks, to hear their stories, to you know hear or extend uh, forgiveness, maybe for disappointments in life, all of those things denied us complicate our grieving. Uh, we often feel we've dishonored our loved ones, and, and that only makes our our sense of, of grief all the worse, and the surreal quality of the loss uh, all the more intense. Denise, what Dr. Niemeyer has just been saying, does that resonate with you? Um, it absolutely does. I, uh, differently from the two others that spoke before me today, I actually was given the opportunity to go and be with Scott. He was in the hospital um, for 40 days before he died. And um, the last several days, the hospital gave me the opportunity to go in and sit and be with him. Nobody else could go in. My kids hadn't seen him or talked to him in those entire 40 days, plus the days he was at home uh, quarantined. My son had his 11th birthday sitting on the floor outside the bedroom door. Um, but I was able to go in and sit and be with him. And unfortunately, because he um, was so sick, there was no conversations. Um, it, it was just sitting with somebody waiting. How's your son dealing with it? Um, I have two boys. One is autistic and doesn't quite know how to process through all of it. Um, and my younger one is missing his dad terribly. Every day is different. Some days we can have great stories and laughter. And other days there's a lot of anger and sadness. And it's really difficult because my boys are not, um, they're not engaging in school like most kids would at this point in time. They are at home. They're on their computers. They're spending a lot of days going in and out of hospitals and uh, medical appointments for their own care at this point. And um, my young one said to me this week, I'm afraid at some point I'm going to wake up and one of us are going to be dead. It's like you can't escape it. Not that you would be able to escape losing someone, but having to feel the symptoms still and work to try and get better and take care of your family while doing this. I, how, how do you find the strength? Other than being the mom and having to, (laughs) like you got the kids, so 
you got to be there for I mean, them. I honestly don't know. I have friends and family and neighbors and people who call and come by and um, just force me to get up and go. Um, I lost my job the week that Scott died, and it's not been a priority to me to go to work. My priority has been to get better and to take care of my kids, and um, we all prod one another every day to get up and eat and drink and go for a walk if we can that day and find something that we can laugh at or enjoy or poke fun at uh, just to get out of the hole that we have been sitting in for a full six months. Denise, uh, again, thank you so much for sharing your story with, with all of those folks who are listening to this. Um, I want to bring into this discussion Marcos Flores, who is uh, from Miami, Florida. Marcos, your dad, Jose Reyes, was 84. He died of COVID-19 earlier this month. Tell us a little bit about your dad. And as we've asked all the people who have participated in this particular broadcast, how COVID entered your lives well, thank you for having me on and, and being able to share my story with, with you guys and, and everyone else that's listening. Um, my dad was 84 years old, um, very healthy individual, um, would would always be, you know, fun, um, easygoing. And, um, you know, he, he came to the United States he, from Cuba. He came to the United States in 1980. He was a political prisoner in Cuba. Um, so, so he endured a lot of torture and all that while he was in prison. Um, and he came here for the American dream and, you know, and he, and he believed in it and, and he was just a, just a good man, a good father, brother, son, grandfather. And, um, sometime in late July, um, he was part, he was running some errands that he needed to go. He needed to go to the pharmacy and the supermarket and all that. And, um, and, that's where he caught the virus. Um, started feeling bad beginning of July, uh, August. I'm sorry, and um, and got tested by by the by the city of Miami paramedics on August seventh uh, for COVID. Um, and those tests take ten to fourteen days to get the results. Well, um, I, when I talked to him the the, the that weekend, uh, he told me about it. On Monday, I called the city. They told me, no, those results do take 10 to 14 days. And uh, 14 days later, he was fighting for his life on a ventilator. And 21 day- days later, after he got tested, he passed. Um, you know, I, I I was, I don't know if fortunate is the right word, but I was able to be there, you know, when, when he passed. They let me be there. I, I held his hand. I was there with him. And, um, and... And this, this this virus has completely changed my life and my family's life, you know. And I I I, I still can't believe it, you know. I, I I can't believe that my dad went from a healthy man to to what I was what I saw, you know. And oh, sorry, I'm I'm lost for words. No, and for it to happen over just the matter of weeks, when you think about it now, and you try and grapple with that. We hear, and this is another thing that we hear commonly, it's, it's you know, you deal in what ifs. Like, what if he had gone to the store on a different day? Or what if this? Or what if that? And he was he the type that was pretty careful? 
Because I imagine he, if I was he, 84, I'd, I'd be wearing my mask everywhere. So, Not that I don't yeah, already. So he, so he he was careful, wore a mask, had a face shield, gloves, um, and and all that. And and as a matter of fact, he was he would text me probably every other day. Oh, be careful! Don't go outside. You, you guys save space. This virus. Um, you know you don't want to get sick. Um, and and this happens. But yeah, he 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 was taking care of himself. And and something happened somewhere along the line. He he came in contact with either somebody that was asymptomatic and 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 gave him the virus, or or he touched something and and he caught the virus. I, I that's that's the only thing I can come up with. Marcos, I'm curious because we said, you know, at the very beginning of the uh, the program that that despite two hundred thousand plus deaths in this country and many many people who are ill and have remained ill even weeks or months after having first gotten COVID. There are people who in this country who still say that it's nothing more than a bad flu. It's uh, nothing greater than a lot of other diseases that people have. Uh, what's your thoughts when you hear comments such as that? Um, it, it, it fills me with rage. You know, because this virus is serious. It's not a cold. It's not. A, it's not a hoax. It, it's serious. You know, and um, like I said, I was able to go into the ICU ward of the hospital, and not only did I see my father, I saw the whole floor of, of ICU patients with COVID on ventilators. Um, it, it, this is serious. This is not a cold, and and for people to be taking it lightly. It's upsetting, you know. My dad didn't have to die. No one should have died. We should not have 200,000 people dead because of the coronavirus. What do you think it is that some people still think the other way, even after, you know, the number uh, is huge, if, but it's just said honest, like a number. If, 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 okay, so so your question was, what do I think? Why do I think people think it's a hoax or, or, or not? Or just don't take it as seriously. I mean, if they haven't lost okay, someone, and, maybe it's different if, for them, but you have. I, 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 I don't want to make this political, but it, 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 it starts from the top, you know, and, 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 and to be honest with you, it's been failed leadership, even with the governor here in Florida. You know, today he announced that he's going to do phase three of opening full, full on restaurants and everything. I, I, I understand restaurants need to open, but, you know, just yesterday we had 2,500 new cases. I, I don't see how, how that's right. And, 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 you know, and people, people look up to their leaders, especially the elderly. They look up to their leaders and, and, and it's just failed leadership from, from, from the top. Marcos Flores, Miami, Florida. His father, Jose Reyes, 84 years old, died of COVID earlier this month. Marcos, thank you for, for telling us about him. And uh, I want to throw a question back to uh, Dr. Robert Niemeyer, who has been with us for the uh, program. And again, he's a therapist and director of the uh, Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. And uh, just taking, uh, sort of taking out of what uh, Mr. Flores was just talking about, I'm wondering if part of the, what makes it difficult perhaps in the grieving process for people who have lost loved ones to COVID is other diseases like cancer, for example. I mean, everybody agrees that cancer is a bad thing. Nobody, you don't find anybody who belittles somebody who comes down with cancer. But this disease, COVID-19, 
it has become politicized. And you do have people who say, nah, that's not that bad. It's only like having a flu. And when you hear the people that we've had on this program, one after another, including just now Mr. Flores, clearly it's not. Does that make the grieving process difficult, more difficult? Well, it surely does. And I, and I find that Marcos's response is, uh, is admirable for that reason, that not only do we need to work on healing our own grief and that of our family, our loved ones touched by the same loss, uh, but we also need to work on, on healing this broken country, uh, so divided, so fractionated, um, and, and so fundamentally out of touch uh, with these human realities that are being just shared with great courage on this program. Um, this is something very real. Uh, this is something that will not stop with this 200,000. We're just getting started. And if we want to have an idea of what 2021 will look like, all we have to do is look at most of 2020, because this is not going to go away quickly. Any, any expert in epidemiology or biology will tell you so. Um, so looking back, looking now and looking forward, we need to take seriously uh, the, the human cost of this, uh, not only to the patients who die, but also to those who survive. You know, as we, we listen, we hear the symptoms that, and struggles that they carry forward, the anxieties about their own death or death of other family members who still are ill, still being treated. And as we recognize the need to take action, not just to save dollars and jobs, but also lives, um, there's a reason here uh, to be confronting the serious questions and and not simply buying the, the the preferred story of it all getting better, because it isn't. You know, we are 4% of the world's population, and we account for over 20% of the active infections and over 20% of the actual deaths. So there's something fundamentally wrong with this picture. I, I'm, I'm in solidarity with uh, Marcos uh, in this. I, I think that it requires a, a hard look at our own hearts and at our own politics. Dr. Robert Niemeyer there, therapist, director of the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. We have Fiona Garza Tulip from the New York area on the line. Her mother, Isabel Papadimitrio, 64 years old, died of COVID on July 4th in Dallas, Texas. Um, Fiona, thank you for talking to us today. I want to start the same way we started with everybody. Is First off, just tell us a little bit about your mom. Sure. And thank you for having me. Um, I think telling the story of my mom means so much to me because I truly believe she should still be here today. So keeping her spirit alive in this way has been really helpful. Um, my mom was a giant in her kindness. Um, her life was marked by hardship. And up until recently, I have never seen her so happy, and I think I can take a little bit of credit for that because I had her first and only grandchild, um, Lua, and it just made her the happiest we've ever seen. Um, her smile was bigger. Her glow was bigger. But beyond that, you know, my mom was just there for everyone. Beyond being the perfect grandmother, she was the perfect friend. She was the perfect aunt. She was the perfect um, cousin. You know, she... She was so thoughtful and so giving, and everyone who knew her just feels this enormous amount of emptiness in our life um, since she's been gone. Tell us, as we've asked everybody, um, how 
this horrible disease, and it is a horrible disease. It is. Mm-hmm. How it entered your life, your lives? Yeah. Um, well, my mom was a 64-year-old respiratory therapist. She was in the the hospital in, in Dallas, and she actually worked in the rehab clinic. So she didn't work in the actual hospital where most of the cases were. But because of the spike in Texas, which happened after Governor Abbott opened too early, um, because of that spike, her rehab unit started to see COVID cases. Unfortunately, not everybody was tested when they were admitted into the rehab unit. They were tested when they were admitted into the hospital. So my mom was treating a patient, um, and uh, there's a story that she told, and and again, we don't know if this was actually what happened or how it happened, but there was a visitor in the hospital who was visiting her dad, and my mom was rehabbing her dad. Um, The visitor refused to wear a mask. And she said, if my president doesn't wear one, I don't have to either. Um, not too long after that, about 20 other um, healthcare workers got COVID and eight patients caught COVID. Again, there's no proof that this is what happened, but this was what was kind of going on in my mom's, within my mom's workplace and with outside of the walls of her workplace. Mm-hmm. Um So she came home feeling sick on a Saturday, June 27th, and she was dead on July 4th, exactly a week later. Wow. Um, The type of communication you were able to have over the course of that week? I just text. I didn't even get to talk to her on the phone. I found out on July 1st, so a a few days before she died. She didn't want to burden me. She... I think we all thought she would be okay, including her. So I found out from my brother who lives with my mom and he said, Hey, just want you to know mom's feeling better. And I asked him what he meant. I had no idea. And from there I texted her that night and I said, what's going on? And she said, I, I do have COVID, but I'm going to fight this thing for princess Lua, my daughter. And I believed her. And after that, I texted her on Thursday. I texted her on Friday. It took her a long time to respond on Friday. And then Saturday morning, she was gone. In in terms of um, your grieving process, um, have you been able to process this? It, it, it all happened to tell, to hear your story. It happened so fast. Uh, going from a vital, uh, you know, youngish, 64 is pretty young nowadays, uh, mm-hmm. individual, and then dying in such a short span of time. How have you been able, have you been able to properly grieve? Where do you start? I don't even know where to start. No, I, I don't think I've been able to properly grieve. I haven't cried. I've probably cried a handful of times, maybe, at her burial um, and the day that she died. But after that, I, I I cried when she died. And then the next day I was angry. It, it just turned into anger. And now it's frustration because I want her back. And it's um, forgetfulness. It's a lot of weird kind of feelings that I have. And I think it's because I truly feel like her death was preventable. And so I, I can't accept that she's really gone. Um, so I... I so because I won't accept that she's gone, I'm not grieving. And it's it's confusing for me because I want to cry. That was my mother. I feel like I should cry, but I on it I can't. I can't. I'm I'm too angry. Fiona Garza Tulip from the 
New York area. Fiona, thank you for talking with us today. Uh, Dr. Niemeyer in Portland, where do people start when they feel like their person should still be here? Well, I think we start with where we are and where we are emotionally to acknowledge what is there. And and if what's there right now is anger, if what's there right now is forgetfulness, then that's where we begin. We find an audience for those stories of our heart and soul. And as we begin to just step into those stories more deeply, uh, when we feel the the safety of a relationship where people are willing to really listen to how it is and not just offer uh, simple platitudes, uh, then we can begin to move toward those more maybe elusive and in some ways more threatening emotions, sometimes weaker, more vulnerable emotions. Like, you know, anger is a pretty strong state. Um, we feel some strength in that. Um, that can serve as a kind of secondary emotion that kind of holds us together for a while. And it's, it, it, you know, is maybe easier than diving into the core sense of deep loneliness, of regret, of uh, that sense of the void left in our lives by this person's physical absence. So, but I do think that there are things that we can do I, as, as grieving individuals, as families, as caring communities. I think that there are some guidelines that we can take into account um, to work with our grief and our loss. And uh, I'd be happy to speak to a few of those, but I also don't want to um, pull time away from the primary stories here that I'm learning from right along with everybody else. Well, uh, that's almost a whole other program uh, to talk about all the, the different things because uh, we are running out of time. Is there one quick thing that you can pass along to our listeners, Doctor? Okay, just here's here's a small handful quickly speak the names of those we have loved and lost, find an audience for their stories, engage in conversations about them, share the grief, find other people who are touched by these losses in their own ways and hear their stories and, and their stories of the impact of our loved one on their lives. Review some photos, that tends to bring it all into focus. Um, if we're having difficulty accessing feelings, those photos of time shared can often uh, help us evoke that and to do that alongside someone we we love and who will enter the stories with us. Um, make meaning of the event if you can. Find what has significance in your life now. Uh, try to ask the question in the long run, what impact do I want my loved one and this tragic loss to have in my life and in the life of my children and the life of my community? And as we engage these things, then we don't erase the pain of the loss. Um, we don't lose the grief, but we can use the grief. Dr. Robert Niemeyer, therapist, director of the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. Doctor, thank you for, for your counsel today. Again, families across the country and around the world dealing with grief and loss during this pandemic. These are just some of the many, many stories out there.